And so um, peace, you cannot have peace apart from the Prince of Peace, who is Jesus. Right? So the only way you're ever going to experience true, authentic peace in your life is through Christ. And so it is a desire of God. It's a part of God's will. Now, we're in this series on prayer, and uh, one of the things that God desires, one of His will, His will is that you experience God's divine peace. And so if I were to try to define prayer, I would define it as the process by which God prepares our hearts in order to experience God's presence and His will. And a part of His will is that He wants us to experience and walk in and live in His divine peace. So we have tried to dispel the, um, uh, the illusion that prayer is about treating God like a vending machine. We saw, saw that video last Sunday, how you, we stand before the, video, the vending machine and we're telling God what we want and we put the prayer in, we pull the handle and get what we want out of the vending machine. And we don't want to treat God like a, this is a grocery list, I just drop off at his feet and ask him to take care of it and I'll check in on you from time to time to see how well you are doing. Prayer is about relationship. This, this walk that we have with God is all about relationship. And so prayer is the process by which God expands our vision of Him. You know, we, we talked about a few weeks ago about the names of God and what they represent. And so God wants to expand our vision of who He is. You know, we use the term God, which is a very, very generic term. People can say God and and mean different things. They may, they may mean the God of Buddha, or they may mean the God of Allah, or, or someone else. But when you start zeroing in on God's names as He has displayed them in Scripture, we get a vision of who God is and what it is He wants and desires to do for us, and in us, and through us. And it deepens our hunger for Him. Man, I, I hope that and pray that you, you catch the heart of your Father and then you come to understand that his wisdom, his wisdom behind everything that he directs us in is really the wisest thing to do or to stretch our faith. This walk with our Father is a faith walk. It is not a sight walk. It is learning how to walk by faith. So God stretches our faith. And so we have to sometimes hammer that out on the anvil of prayer as we are, as God is stretching our faith in different areas, it is to lift our desires to a higher place. So Jesus said it like this in John 15. He says, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me bears much fruit, because apart from me you can do absolutely nothing. So here's the thing. If I'm not abiding in Christ, if I'm not building that relationship, if I'm not spending time with Jesus, if my life is not Jesus-centered as I'm abiding in him, when the weight of life gets pushed down on me, that branch will collapse because it's, it's not in the vine. You're not, you're not drawing life from Christ. And, and so if I'm just treating God like a vending machine or treating my relationship with Christ that way or just like a, a grocery list and I'm not abiding in him and just spending time with him and, and slowing myself down and just listening to him and absorbing him and abiding in that relationship, I will be a very weak branch. And so when life comes against you, all of a sudden, boom, uh, things begin to collapse. And so every aspect of the Lord's Prayer, as we are in Matthew 6, has to deal with, has to do with strengthening that branch that you are as you abide in Christ. For example, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. We spent two weeks on that because it's all about security. Where do you find your security in life? 
Do you look for security through your finances, your money? Well, that can be here today and gone tomorrow. Do you look for it through relationships? We know that relationships deteriorate all the time. Are you looking for it through your physical health? Well, that, that may be great for a while, but as you age, your body begins to change. Where, what are, is your security rooted in? God says, I want you to root your security in me. When the weight of life comes bearing down on me, I remember. I remember who God is and what he can do. These names say to me, this is what God can do. The names all through Scripture, as we I've put an insert in your, your bulletin again out of 1 Peter 5, you can take any passage of Scripture and look at the names of ways God has displayed himself through himself, through Christ, through the Holy Spirit, because it says to us, in essence, this is who I am. This is what I have the power to do. This is where you want to build your life. This is where you want your security, because it's all about building our character. God is concerned about our character, and the character that God is producing is what? Love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. It is the fruit of the Spirit. So that when life comes against me, rather than collapsing and feeding into my coping mechanisms and feeding into the flesh, walking in the flesh, which ultimately results in things that are not helpful but very harmful in the long run, God says, I want to I establish character in you. I want to establish security in you that's built around character that is built upon the foundation of the fruit of the Spirit, the Spirit living inside of you, the empowerment of God, so that you can withstand those things. So in the essence of the gospel is salvation, yes. But we're to go deeper and deeper in the gospel every day of our lives in order to find transformation. Transformation is built upon security that we have and it's also built upon this issue we're going to talk about again this morning, the issue of surrender, right? Surrender has to do with stress. How many of you got some stress in your life? Yeah, we all do, right? We all have stress. We, we experience stress every single day of our lives. Now, not all stress is bad, but there's a lot of stress that is very harmful to us. And if we're not sure how to deal with it and cope with it, it results in things like hypertension, heart disease stomach issues, it takes its toll on your body physically over time because the body cannot handle undue amounts of stress. So how about if I exchange my stress for the peace of God, right, for the contentment of the Lord in my life and my ability or inability to cope with stress results in living a life that's filled with fear, worry, and anxiety. And much of the stress comes into our lives we have no control over. So we talked this, uh, last week about this, so I'm just going to touch on them briefly, is here's some things that you have no control of. You have uncontrollable circumstances. You can't control all the circumstances in your life. There's just no way. Tomorrow morning, you're going to get up, you're going to jump in your car, you're going to head to work, and there's going to be a traffic jam on 270. I guarantee you, especially if there's a wreck, you'll really have a traffic now, listen, you can jump up and down, you can cuss, you can do anything you want. You have no control over that circumstance, and that's not going to help anything. Right? If, if somebody goes to the airport, I've seen more people act like idiots in an airport when their flight gets delayed, and they run up to the desk, and they just jump all over these poor girls behind the desk as though they have any control over the situation, which they don't, and so they just start, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like, what, what good is that going to do other than make you look like a fool? Nothing. All kinds of circumstances. 
Some circumstances are a little more, more uh, devastating, and that is, you know, it's, there's an economic downturn, uh, so you, maybe you lose a job. So those are things that are outside of your control, or maybe it's even something more devastating, like um, the doctor says to you, hey, you have cancer. I have no control over the fact that I now have cancer. I have control over what I can do about that, but I have no control over the fact that I have it or a loss of a loved one. I have no control over how long people live. There is no guarantee that somebody's going to live to be 120 years old. None. We have no control over those things, and all of those things create stress in our lives every day. We have uncooperative people. We meet uncooperative people everywhere we go, at home, at work, at school, we're, I mean, in the grocery store, wherever it is you are. Now, there are two lies that we embrace when it comes to uncooperative people. The two lies that we embrace about ourselves is that other people can control me, or lie number two, I can control other people. And the way you control somebody is by fear, intimidation, manipulation, those kinds of things is how I seek to control people, right? This is, the, this is humanity. And uh, so an example is like we try to control our children, right? Because we have, so, as a, so if I'm the one in control, then I'm the one with the power and the authority. So when we have kids, you know, our kids, we have power and authority over them. And so we're kind of in control of them, at least we think we are, but we're really not, but we think we are. And so, for example, uh, we had our grandson a few weeks ago, and he did one of those things where he just goes limp, you know, like on the ground. Like, you can't make me get in the car seat. I'm not going to go in the car seat. No, 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 no. And so, uh, you know, you, Cooper, get up. Now, after a while, it's like, okay. And so then, you know, anger start. You start to get a little angry. And so I just, in my mind, I'm thinking, all right, buddy. I'm bigger than you. I'm stronger than you. I'll scoop you up. I put him in the car seat. Now you know who's boss. And so this is kind of the way we are with our kids all throughout their lifetime. We are, we are helping guide and, and direct their lives. We have control over them until they become teenagers. And then everything changes. They don't want any control over them. They don't want you telling them what to do. They don't want... And so they start making their own decisions, and they may be bad decisions, and you as a parent are going to step in, you're going to rescue, you're going to control them, and the way you're going to control them is by taking away things or making threats and trying to manipulate, um, and you just kind of jump in and try to control everything about them. Or what about a marriage relationship where some, you know, there's always the issue of who's going to be in control of this relationship, and so maybe, uh, you know, Somebody, your spouse gets out of control and you say, well, I'll, I'll teach them. And you give them the silent treatment for the next week or month or however long it is because it's a, it's a form of control in your mind. You're controlling the situation. The fact of the matter is we have no power to control anybody. I can't make you do anything. God can't even make you do something. He's giving you freedom of choice. And so I can't make people love Jesus. I can't make people come to church. I can't make them give. I can't make you read your Bible. I can't make you take this message and go home and, and do anything about it. You, you have complete control. I have none. A great way to destroy a relationship is thinking that you can control it. Because you realize you can't, so you turn to anger, begging, manipulating, and it all comes to the surface. And, but the Bible says, listen, this is not the way of the kingdom. This is the way of the world. The Bible says there is no fear in love. And 
The threat of punishment, fear, intimidation, manipulation is the way that we get things done in the world, but it's not the way God does things in his kingdom, nor is it kingdom culture. It's the world's culture. We'll touch on that in a minute because, watch this, that's what we project upon God. We say, well, God's got all authority. God's got all the power. He's going to control me and manipulate me because if I don't, he's going to punish me. We think that's the way God operates his kingdom, which could not be further from the truth. That's a lie of the enemy. That's not the culture that God has set up in his kingdom. Here's the third one, unexplainable pain. We experience pain, and there doesn't seem to be any rhyme or reason. And so why me? Why this? Why now? And we demand that God give us answers. And when we don't get answers from God, we fill in the blanks ourselves. And then Satan comes along, and he says, you know, he uses things like shame and guilt and punishment and past mistakes. And he just like, so here I have a young family who's in the hospital. Their young child is, you know, it's, it's like balanced between life and death. And Satan's pounding into their ears. You know, the reason why your child's in this condition is because of what you did. Da, 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 da. And he starts hammering away. And it's your past mistakes. And so God's going to have to punish you for them. And that, therefore, that child's not going to make it. This is what your enemy does all the time. That's why Jesus said he comes to steal, kill, and destroy. And so in unexplainable pain, all these things outside of us, we perceive that God is all about line up, follow the rules, and if you don't, bam, punishment. And it creates a tremendous amount of stress. So Jesus says, we're praying, thy kingdom, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The kingdom of God is where Jesus is king. And it's where God's will is being done. And the reason we pray this is because rarely is God's will being done here on earth. Rarely. People are living in rebellion. They don't want God's will. They don't want anything that God has for them. Um, And so here's the deal. Here's God's culture. He'll honor your decision. God has established a culture of honor in his kingdom. And honor says, you know what? I, I will honor your decision, whatever that is. So if you say, I don't want Jesus, okay, that's what God, okay, if you, all right, I don't want to read the Bible, okay, I don't want to pray, I, I don't like praying, I think it's a waste of time, I don't want to pray, okay, God just gives you, he honors you by allowing you to make your own decisions, but you have to understand that with every decision that we make, there's the, there's the principle of sowing and reaping. We are sowing something, and we're going to reap something later on the basis of our decisions. And listen, God's not about manipulating us. He's not about throwing around his authority and his power. He could, but that's not the way he's established his kingdom. He is about letting you make your own decisions, and then you just reap the consequences of those decisions, whatever they are. What God's want, wanting to do when he wants to bring his will into your life is that what God wants to do is he wants to set your feet on the best path that leads to the best destination of the decisions that you're making. He wants the best for your life. Do you actually believe that? If you believe it, then we don't have a problem surrendering. But if we don't believe that, now nah, we got another issue. And so this prayer is a prayer of surrender, a prayer of honor where I say, God, you know what? I'm going to honor you. I'm going to allow you to speak into my life Because I believe that you want what is best for me, and you want to put my feet on the best paths that lead to the best destination. Therefore, I willingly surrender and submit myself to your will and your ways. This is the way Jesus was with his disciples, right? 
Jesus is heading towards Jerusalem. He's about to die. He's about to be crucified for the sins of humanity. He gathers his disciples together and says, uh, guys, this is what's going to happen to me. And of course, you know, and then he looks at him and says, you're all going to run. You're all going to scatter. You're all going to leave. And of course, you know, Peter's like, no, Lord, I won't do that. I, I would die for you. And, and like Jesus like, okay, but yours is going to be the most famous denial that there ever was, right? Remember, Jesus, Peter denied him three times in the court of Caiaphas, and of course, everybody remembers that. But after saying that to his disciples, you're about to betray me, he says, now let's establish a covenant together. He said, I'm going to honor this relationship, even though you're about to dishonor it, I'm going to honor it, because I'm going to let you make the decision, but I just want you to know, I'm always here because I want to, I want to bring you back. I'm not going to try to pay you back for your, your betrayal, I'm, I'm going to bring you back. I want to bring you back. So you don't remember what Peter did with, or Jesus did with Peter? He stood on the seashore, and he waited for Peter, Peter to come by, and he said, hey, Peter, he's got the fire built. Remind Peter of where he was when he denied Christ. He says, hey, Peter, you love me? Lord, you know I love you. And so he goes through the scenario, and he says to Peter, in essence, Peter, um, our covenant is a, a covenant of honor towards one another, and I just want you to know, I'm not holding this against you. I'm wanting to have a relationship. I'm going to honor you whether you honor me or not. That's why Jesus said, I didn't come to lord it over you. I came to be a servant, and I came to die for the sake of others. Not to be a power monger, not to be an authority pusher, but to serve and to serve others. Even on the cross, he said, Father, forgive them. They don't, they don't know what they're doing. That's the culture of honor that God has established in his kingdom. So here's the, the issues con concerning surrender. Steps to surrender means that I let go of control and I acknowledge that God's will is greater than mine. We all struggle with this issue of surrender, of this giving up control, because we always think our will is superior. Right? If we would pray this prayer, it would be a little more like, my kingdom come, my will be done on earth as it is in heaven. See, one of the ways you know that's kind of your mindset is that what if you pray for something and God says no? How do you respond? Do you respond by saying, Father, well, obviously there's something here that you're guarding me from, something you're protecting me from, or you're just going to get angry and make it happen because that's what you want and that's what you desire. Come hell or high water, that's what you're going to do. God says, okay. All right, go. Go for it. Because love doesn't operate in fear. Love doesn't operate in control. Love doesn't operate in punishment. Love operates in a situation, in a culture that's without fear, with a sound mind. and That's what love does. So when we face situations beyond our control, we can either try to control them, ramp up our control, or we can just step back and try to, and just become the victim. Like, okay, I'm the victim. I can't do anything about this. This is just the way life is. And so our stress goes up because we are in conflict with God. God so wants us to experience his will. And here's, this is on your outline. This is God's will. It is that it, it, it's the path that I would choose for myself if I could see things from God's perspective, because I can't, and neither can you. But if I could see things from God's perspective, I know this is the path that I would always choose. And that's why 
I can come to a place of surrender because I believe God wants his will for my life, which is the best path for the best destinations. And then if I could just see things from his perspective, this is the path I would always choose. Otherwise, I'm going to fight for control the rest of my life. And when you fight for control with God, you're going to ramp up your stress. You're going to be emotionally drained. You're going to be fatigued and you're going to be wiped out. And here's the backdrop behind all this. That which we love, we try to control. That which we love, we often try to control. We do this in relationships all the time. Let's suppose your son's a fifth grader. He comes home from school and has a report card, and the report card has a big fat F where it says math. Now, as a parent, um, you're going to look at that report card, and more than likely, the spirit of fear is going to begin manifesting in you. And the spirit of fear is, oh no, this is a trend. He's going to start flunking math and who knows what else. He's going to be held back in fifth grade this year, maybe another year. How's it going to affect himself? And it's only going to get worse from here, middle school and high school, and he'll never get into the college we want him to go to, and on and on. So fear begins to take over, and your mind begins to rattle around about all of the scenarios that might happen, could happen, and probably will happen as far as you're concerned. And so, uh, with fear gripping your heart, all you can think about is, how do I control this child's educational outcome as a parent? And so, what do most parents do? All right, um, until these grades get up, we're taking away your Xbox, we're taking away, you know, we just go down the line, da-da-da-da-da-da, we're taking this away, taking that away. And the problem with that is this, this child has never had to take ownership for what they've just brought home. What, what if you approached it from, see, that's, that's like control. I'm the parent. I have the power. I have the authority. I can take things away, and I can make you pay dearly until you get these grades up. Horrible motivator. It motivates very few kids. Now, they may, it may motivate them for a while, but it's not a long-term thing until they begin to feel the weight of their decision. What if you said instead, came, approached it from a little different perspective, and you said, you know what? Uh, hey, uh, we need to talk. Uh, we just, your mother and I just, just found out that you are an early bloomer uh, of the, control, of the uh, curve of Fs in your classroom. And, uh, you know, we love you as a mom and dad, and, and you know, we're, we're going to honor you in this relationship, but we... We just want you to know that, um, we, we, you know, I don't know if you just continue this trend. I don't know how many times you're going to have to repeat the fifth grade. You know, you're just going to keep flunking math. You're going to have to repeat fifth grade, maybe one year, two years, three years. And by the way, by the second year, your sister will have caught up with you. And they, so you guys can start going to things together. And, and all your friends, you know, they'll be in middle school and they've gone on. Uh, you know, they're, they're way behind you. Now, and now you're going to be left here with your sister and so all of a sudden, he, fear begins to like hit him, not because he's afraid of being punished, but because now all of a sudden, ownership comes into play. I have to own this thing, because this could have some really bad results if I continue this path, if I continue this, this downward spiral in my grades. You think he might try a little bit harder with that reality? In the culture of honor, the culture of love, where I have to take ownership for what I've done. You see, until somebody takes ownership for what they've done, 
They'll just blame somebody else so they don't have to take responsibility for their actions. This is the cycle of humanity. Nobody wants to take responsibility for their actions because they always have somebody else to blame. As long as I have somebody else to blame, I don't have to take responsibility. But here you're allowing in this, taking ownership for one's decision is the culture of honor. And it's not couched in the spirit of fear. And so God uses not his power of fear and punishment to keep us in line. No, God uses the culture of honor and we have to know that when we make decisions, we have to feel the weight of those decisions. God is, most people think that God is all about keeping the rules. And he'll do whatever he has to do to keep you in line in keeping the rules. This is how most churches operate. We're all about the rule keeping. And when somebody gets out of line, we're going to punish them in order to get them back in the right relationship with the rules. Jesus did not come to establish a relationship with the rules. Jesus came so that we could establish a relationship with the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit who is operating in us that brings us closer to Christ, that creates this hunger and this desire to know the will of God, to walk in the will of God. And so I follow Christ. I follow God's parameters. I follow God's rules, if you want to call them rules. I don't even call them rules. I call them, uh, you know, God's just given me pathways to follow because he, this is what he wants for me. This is the best he wants for me. And I desire to follow those pathways because I know that my heavenly father loves me and only wants what's best for me. There's a whole different ball game if you're following God because you're afraid of him as opposed to following him because you just keep following deeper in love with him. I've heard many, many Christians over the years say, well, you know, I missed, uh, I missed church last Sunday. I, 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 the Lord's going to let something bad happen to me. As though God is just all about keeping you in line with, with the rules. That's not what he's about. The reason I, I live my life letting go of control and acknowledging God's will as greater than mine is because I know that God's will is the path that I would choose. If I could see things from his perspective, I would choose it every time. Now, some of you may be in control because something has happened to you and when, you, uh, when something happened, when God was in control, it's like something bad happened to you. And you've become bitter over it, over the years. And so, you want God to explain the pain. And maybe he hasn't explained it yet. And you're demanding it. That worry has turned into bitterness, and here's why. Worry is fear that God will get it wrong again, and bitterness is believing that he already has. Let that sink in. Worry is the fear that God will get it wrong again, and bitterness is the belief that he already has. And so now your life is driven by feelings rather than faith. They're in the driver's seat. And you're refusing to let go of control because you don't think you can trust your Heavenly Father. Here's number two. You've got to learn to be content and allow God to show you His will. You learn to be content. Um, the key to inner peace is learning to be content. Now, you can change whatever you have the ability to change, but there are a lot of things, remember, that are outside of our control that we cannot change. So you can either worry about it, resent it, get bitter, feel guilty about it, um, 
have a self-pity party, do all those things. It won't help at all. The only thing that works in situations that you cannot change is acceptance. I just have to accept the fact I can't change this. I remember, you know, several years ago when my oldest daughter was going to go to college and she's trying to figure out where she wanted to go, and I, I knew where I wanted her to go. And so she was making all these decisions. I knew what I said. I was dead set. She was going to go to Cedarville College, and, and that's where it was going. And so finally, in, in my frustration as a dad, I said, I'll tell you what, you can go to any college you want. That's your decision, but my money's going to Cedarville. You know what she didn't do? She didn't go to Cedarville. See, I had to learn to accept the fact, you know what? Maybe God has another plan for her. Maybe God's setting her feet on another path that leading to another de destination. I have to trust God in all of that. And so the, the school that she selected ended up being a bad choice, a very bad choice. But it set her feet on a path because it was her decision, not necessarily Lord, but it was her decision. And so she had to, to, to reach a point in her life where she you know, took ownership of that. And then God set her feet on another path that led to a much better decision, to a much better direction in her life. And so that's why the Apostle Paul says that I've learned to be content with the things that I have and with everything that happens. I know how to live in when I'm poor, when I have plenty. I have learned the secret of being happy or contented at any time in everything that happens. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And so we oftentimes look at, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, and we quote that all the time, but we never attach it to the fact that it is attached to contentment. And so Paul wrote this while he was in prison, not while he was sitting in a palace. He says, listen, I've learned to be content to accept my lot in life where I am right now. Whether I have plenty or not, it doesn't matter. I learn. And so contentment is a learned thing, right? It's a learned experience. By nature, we are not contented people. We are always discontented. A sign of maturity is that you learn how to be content wherever you are. Now, you may not be, want to stay in that place all the time for the rest of your life. That's not the issue. The issue is can I be content where I am? Because if I can't, and it always has to be better, and always has to be different, and always has to be something else, then that just creates more and more stress in my life. Because now you're, you're borrowing into things you have no control over, by and large. You have control over some of those things, but most of it you're not going to have control over. And you're trying to wait on the Lord, and so you're becoming impatient, and you're saying, God, I will not, cannot be content until you come through. I'm going to tell you, I, I've done that many times. That's a miserable way to live. It's just a miserable way to live. And so you're letting the thief to steal and kill and destroy um, any sense of peace that is within you. He says it's only possible through Christ's strength. And so the point is that sometimes when God is silent in our lives, we talked about this last week, and I'm moving on. When God's silent in your life, it's probably because he has you in the middle of a test. You know, the only time my teacher was silent in school is when she was giving us a test. And oftentimes that is the same is true with you. God wants to know, are you going to, in this test, are you going to learn to be content? Are you going to learn how to walk in faith? Are you going to learn how to trust what you cannot see? It, it, are, you, are you going to trust me as your heavenly father and my will for you, believing that it is the best that I have designed for you, or are you going to demand 
things be changed and done another way, primarily our way. And so, uh, yeah, when we're in pain, we need God's presence, man. We need His we need His love. And so I ask you the question, what are you angry with God about? Well, I demand God explain the pain. Well, He can explain the pain to you or explain the reason behind something, but it's not going to take away the pain. I have sat with many couples who have lost children in the hospital. The doctor comes out and says, full explanation. This is what went wrong. This is what happened. Did that take away their pain? Absolutely not. Explanations never take away our pain. And so at that moment in time, you, you know, they're in need of God's presence and they're in need of God's uh, power inside of them working through His Holy Spirit. So here's the third thing, because you can listen to last week's message online for the rest of those, but is surrendering to Jesus means that I lay down my plans and I adjust my life to His will. You see, I find that problems frequently sabotage our plans. It's the IAS of life. It's always something, right? It's always something. Always something sabotaging your plan. Like this past uh, month, we, we you know, had this big vacation plan for Marla and I and our kids and grandkids. Wrightsville Beach, North Carolina. Hurricane Dorian comes through. Ruins our plans, right? So we got to move from that location to somewhere else. This is the way life is. Life is like, like airplanes are constantly landing in your life. Problems, all right? Those airplanes are problems. You're either in a problem, you just came out of the problem, you're heading towards one. That is just called life. Life always has problems. Life always has difficulties. It's always something in our lives. I know in, in my mind, I used to think, oh, if I could just do this, if I could just get this job, and if I could just get this promotion, if I could just own this, and if I could just move here, and if I could just do that. But problems always hinder you from those things in your life. And so you have to lay down your plans because problems aren't always going to cooperate with your plans. And there's three reasons why we have so many problems. One is because we just make bad decisions, right? We don't always use our time wisely. I mean, in school, how many of you procrastinated at the very last minute to get that term paper done when you had six weeks to get it done? And so then you feel rushed and you feel pressured and stressed. And, uh, you know, sometimes we, we don't use our money wisely and we make bad decisions. We get into debt and we get overextended. We don't always eat right. And then we, you know, regret what we have eaten. And so we make all kinds of bad decisions in our lives. You know, like we know, like doctors tell us all the time, all the time, you know, the human body was meant to be exercised, but we don't want to exercise. I don't mean you have to go in there and pound weights all day long. Just walking is exercise, you know, but we don't want to do that, right? The only marathon we know is a marathon of watching like five seasons of something on Netflix. That's our marathon right there. Right? Yeah. Gee. Uh, or we can do the Lord of the Rings you know, trilogy. I'm, I'm down for that. We have an enemy. That's the second reason why we have so many problems. We have, we have to face the fact that we have an enemy who's dead set against us. I just want you to know that every day, every day when you wake up in the morning, if you don't meet the devil face to face, you're probably heading in the same direction. He's going to do everything he can to mess up your life, to make your life miserable. You need to be aware of that. 
and how God has equipped you to withstand that and to, and to fight against it. Otherwise, you allow him to fill up toxic thoughts in your minds based on toxic emotions now. Your, your thoughts affect your emotions, and which affects the way you live your life. And so if you're constantly believing the lies of the enemy, now your emotional system has been all tanked, and you, you just start doing things that are just out of the ordinary, and you, you really are not going to be beneficial for your life. So we have those problems in our lives. We, have, we live in an imperfect world is the third reason why we have so many problems because, you know, the, the world has fallen, right? Our relationships aren't right all the time. The economy doesn't work. The weather doesn't work. There's just a lot of problems that we face in life. So here's what, here's what Jesus said to his disciples one day when they saw a man who was born blind. They say, who sinned, that man or his, his parents, that he's, he's blind? He says, it wasn't anybody's fault. He says, it happened so that the work of God could be displayed in their life, in his life. What is the work of God in your life? What does he want to do in your life? Here's a work of God in every single person's life here this morning. There are many things, but here's one I know. It's the same for all of us. God wants to move us from being selfish self-centered people to being unselfish, other-centered people. We are all by nature selfish and self-centered, and God wants to transform us to being unselfish and others-centered. And in order for that to happen, God has to take us through a process. It's, it's something that we have to learn. Life and maturity is all about growing up and learning to be other people centered rather than being self-centered. And God says, I want you to learn the work of God. I want you to learn to be unselfish. And so I'm going to test you. I'm going to give you time. I'm going to give you money. I'm going to give you opportunity. I'm going to give you talents. I'm going to give you abilities. Now let's see how you use them. And so as I, listen, as I walk closer and closer to Jesus and he's making that transformation process in my life, in your life, so all of a sudden we begin to see, oh, well, God gave me all these things, not just for me, not just to better my life, not just to ratchet up my lifestyle, but to help others along the way and to be not a container of what God gave me, but to be a channel of what God gave me. God blessed me in order to be a blessing to others, as he said to Abraham all the way back in the book of Genesis. The reason I'm blessing your life so incredibly is so that it can be channeled through you. But oftentimes we don't. We, we, it's not about sharing. It's about saving. It's about hoarding. You know, Jesus talked about a guy who, who had so much money, he just kept hoarding and built more and more barns. Finally, he dies, and Jesus said, let me give you a scenario of his life. He was a fool. He just hoarded it all for himself, but never channeled any of it through him. Here's what Jesus said in Luke 16. I tell you, use your worldly resources. Use your worldly resources to benefit others and to make friends. You know, when you, you, you leverage your time, talents, abilities, resources, and you bring people to the feet of Jesus and they have an encounter with Christ, they'll be your friends for eternity. It's not just money. It's every area of life. He wants us to learn to be a giver, not a taker in life. Jesus said if you insist on saving your life, in other words, I'm going to control it. I'm going to hold it, hold it back. I'm going to hoard it. Uh, I'm going to hoard my time, money, my relationships, and energy. So if you insist on Saving your life, you will lose it. Only those who throw away their lives for my sake and for the sake of the good news will ever know what it means 
to really live? What does it mean to throw away your life? How do you do that? What does that mean, throw away your life? It means that you are using your life, your time, your money, and your energy for not just yourself, but for the sake of others. That's what it means to throw away your life. You're using your life as God would have you use it. 1 John 3.16 says, This is how we know what love is. Jesus laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. And the question is ultimately, are you doing that for anybody? Are you surrendering your plans in any area of your life in order for God to use you to, have a, to make a difference in the lives of others? And so Jesus says, if you make the kingdom your primary concern, Matthew 6.33, I'll supply all of your needs. I'll make sure you're taken care of. You know what, um, what we've discovered is that the more money people make, the less they give away. This is, a, this is a known fact. It is statistically been mapped out. In fact, there's one woman, a, a professor who mapped out the difference in the mindset between a, the poor, uh, the middle class, and the wealthy in every area of life. And she discovered that uh, this, what, the wealthy, they, they keep the wealth among themselves. They give less and less. So it's even when it comes to food, there's a difference in mindset. See, if you come out of poverty, when you go to a restaurant, all you care about is quantity. How much food am I going to get? That's why we love Taco Bell, right? You can get 14 tacos and nacho grande and 50 other things for, you know, five bucks. Who, who's not going to go for that deal? Middle class, though, their mindset is not so much about the quantity as it is the quality. They're willing to pay a little bit more for a greater quality of food. But when it comes to the wealthy, they don't care about quantity or quality. They care about presentation. Is the presentation, do we have the fine china? Is it, you know, the presentation of the food on the plate? Is, is that, so there's just a different in mindset. And so Jesus is trying to just get us to make a shift in mindset that says, oh, because if I have a poverty spirit, then it's like, oh, I, I just got to keep, it's all for me. It's all for me. It's all for me. If I have a, you know, Middle class is no secret. Middle class are the most generous class of people, right? We, we tend to give more money towards things because we don't, we don't look at it as, it's just all for me. And the wealthy, you know, again, it's not about the, the percentage anymore. It's about how, how, much, how many dollars I gave away, not the percentage. So, it, you know, when they were making a little bit money and they gave away 10% and it was like, you know, 30000 a year, that was okay. But now they're making all this money and it's, now, now, now 10% might be like, 600,000, uh, we're not giving that much money away. So Jesus is just trying to, trying to challenge us in this area of surrender of our plans and adjusting our lives to God's will. Here's the last one in closing, leaving the future to God. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 is, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding in all your ways. You, he'll make your path straight. He'll make your path straight. What does that mean? It means he's going to keep you on the right track. Listen to God, what God thinks, because what he thinks is really best. I acknowledge every area of my life, my career, family, sport, whatever it is, I acknowledge everything, and he will make my path straight. So to be real blunt, if you would like to have less stress and more peace in your life, you have some decisions to make. And you must decide every day, is it going to be my will 
or is it going to be God's will? And the only way I'm ever going to choose God's will over mine is if I believe in my heart that God, what God desires for me is absolutely the best. If I could see it from his perspective, that is what I would have chosen every single time. So the question is, what area of your life have you not surrendered to God? Sometimes we surrender the living room and the kitchen, but the bedrooms, it's all off limits. We try to compartmentalize our lives. All right, God, I'll surrender this area, but this area and this area, mm -mm, no. mm. What area are you refusing to surrender? Is it about your finances? Is it about relationships? Is it about your the, the whole issue of surrender itself. I'm just telling you, if you want to live a life that is less stressful, which is what God wants, then you have to come to a point of absolute surrender. Absolute surrender that says, I'm letting go of control. I'm not going to try to play God anymore. I'm learning to be content. I'm laying down my plans. I'm leaving my future to the Lord. I may not understand it. I, may, I don't see what he sees. I may not like where I'm at at that particular moment, but I'm going to learn to be content there because I know that God is simply preparing me for something that is out here. And Jesus says, when you learn to live a life sur surrender, don't think you've given up anything because whatever you think you gave up, Jesus says, the Father will reward it back to you a hundredfold, which means that's a thousand percent interest. Tell me where you can find that at any bank, a thousand percent interest. So let's bow our heads. You know, surrender always begins.